April is Punk Rock Month here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is a remix, reissue of our original episode, Proto-Punk, America Shot First, originally released in March of 2020, with some additional production. And of course, it's brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. We thank them for their support, and because it's an early episode of the podcast, Marcus, there's no break in the middle. So we'll go to Crook and I right now and kick back and enjoy this classic episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I know you love your favorite brews there too, buddy. Absolutely. Which uh, pint do you have in your hand? I'm holding a pint of the Burrow Blonde, which is a nice cream. Oh, that's really good. It's a nice, lighter-tasting beer. I like the ESB, the extra special bitters, uh, because of my affinity for it. And I've rarely found anything that even remotely is like the British bitters I originally fell in love with, other than what Jeff brews there at Crooked Eye. Yeah, some good beers at Crooked Eye. Another one to check out if you like ales is the Golden Eye. It's a clean ale, man. It is so nice. There's all kinds of flavors and all kinds of things, ciders and all kinds of beverages for you right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye Brewery. And the entertainment is going on, too. Marcus, they've moved the Blues Night to Wednesday nights. What? Yeah, Wednesdays at Crooked Eye, and it's always fun online or in the brew pub. Stop by or fill up your growlers in your crowler. Make sure you check out Crooked Eye Brewery's social media pages. That's where you find out if they have any new beers coming. If whatever's going on, it will be put on their social media pages. So check out Crooked Eye Brewery's social media pages. And the uh, website is crookedeyebrewery.com. A great place, a local place that you can take with you. So take some with you wherever you go and spread the Crooked Eye love like we try to do here on the podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Koob, along with Marcus in the Darkest. How are you, dude? Dude, I'm ready to talk about punk rock roots. You know, we've been talking a lot uh, in our first few episodes about British stuff, but there was a lot of stuff going on in America uh, in the mid-60s. I guess uh, people would say that a lot of what we want to talk about today are the roots of punk rock, yeah, which uh, came around and developed in this more in the late 60s and 70s. But uh, there in the mid-60s, what later became known as proto-punk, uh, I guess you'd say the nasty neighbor of garage band rock, right? Yeah, definitely the nasty neighbor of garage band rock, but a major influence on all of the punk sound that we heard in the 70s and 80s, and even the late here. 60s and, and here today. Here. Yeah, it's still today. It is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast, and uh, we want to thank some friends who helped us out on the way in and on the way out. You hear our good friend Rick DeFonzo uh, from his new album, Instrumental. And the mental part is the emphasis there. And you can check out rickdefonso.com to find out how you can get it for yourself. He's done so much great music through the years. And this is what he's been working on, he told me so. And uh, we'll, at some point, we'll get into the, the, the roots of Philly Rock, too, which DeFonso was uh, part of. I wonder if he'll come in and chat with us about it. Well, he's in Florida. If we can get him out of Florida, that would be a good We can trip. get him on the horn with somebody else <laughs> in the true. studio That's as well. True. 
Look, rock and roll, it's just like real human history. We're learning stuff already as we've started this podcast. We're only six episodes in starting today, and we want it to be as interactive as possible. So we've got a couple ways that you can be in touch with us uh, through email, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com or on Facebook. And we have a lot of friends on Facebook who we need, uh, we need to encourage more of them to come and listen to the podcast. Absolutely. It's Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook, so check that out. So... When it comes to proto-punk and the American reaction to British invasions, uh, wave one and two, and probably part of wave three there in the mid-60s, there's a few cities that really show the uh, the ugly side of the American rock and roll response. And let's talk about those, I guess, to get things started. We can go through and talk about that. We have Detroit, we have L.A., we have New York. Yeah, but there were other things going on, too, we found out when we started really looking into it. San Francisco had an ugly little underbelly. Chicago had a little bit. Yeah, and uh, also, not to be too surprising, a band that we actually thought, when we started looking around, we thought they were from L.A. They turned out to be from Tacoma. Ah, the North Close, very close to the Northwest uh, Ground Zero for uh, what happened there much later into the 80s. So, Can't wait to talk about all that. Well, when you look around New York, I think most of us, and this includes me, maybe it's when I was growing up, we tended to see the scene in full blossom in New York, you know, late 60s and into the 70s. But there in 1965, 66, there were a bunch of art guys getting together, a guy named John Cale. Lou Reed. Who was very pissed off at that point. Different from him in the 50s. Uh, yeah, well, we, t- we were talking about that before the podcast. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people went through the, the, that period of time when they were finest and the angry side in America. There was a lot going on in the country. True. Part of it was a reaction to that. But they put together a little troupe called uh, the Velvet Underground. And uh, there With was an art guy. It, huh? With an art guy. Yeah, in, in a way, because Warhol, Andy Warhol, his whole factory scene was all kind of happening in and around that. They were caught up in that. And uh, they had some initial fits and starts and ended up with Mo Tucker on drums, who was probably the most badass woman behind a kit. Not only that, she played unconventionally. You know, she'd like to stand up and hit the shit out of things. It was So it was this whole art scene band. Even, even that first album, we talked about that. Yeah. Uh, with the big banana, mm-hmm. you know, Warhol. The peel-off banana. Yeah, with Warhol. Was it a peel-off? Some copies were. Really? Yeah. Um, I never saw one of those. And the fact that Nico was on the record yes. was a Warhol influence. I don't yeah. know if you know that. He uh, kind of pushed her into the fold, and she did three songs on that record. And they later found their legs uh, on their own. And as they move forward as a band uh, into the 70s, they really hit their stride and, you know, you know, the big songs that everybody remembers uh, Velvet's from, you know. Uh, there at the beginning, though, it wasn't so good. Um, there was a trip, a, a slip and a fumble, and the record didn't, it got shoveled off to the side, didn't really get much attention at first, but it got a lot of uh, fans. I think, I got to go back, maybe I can find out if we take a break in the middle of this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's somebody made the quote, not everybody bought that first Velvet's record, but everyone who bought it formed a fucking band. That's pretty interesting. That's why it's such an influential thing and why it set off so many bombs. Now, we've seen a lot of those types of albums in our days since that Velvet Underground album, and it'll be fun to maybe delve into that subject as well, but 
that album is so important and you hear many musicians claim it as a major influence especially from about five six years afterwards that's what happened yeah. all those bands were getting interviewed in uh, the major press and local press and they were t all citing the velvets and that record and in the continued momentum they had. And then yep. they stumbled and Lou fell out as a solo guy and Kale went on to do other things. But they set off an explosion in New York that led to uh, the Dolls and Richard Hell and the Ramones, you know, and everything that happened, everything that happened right there on the Lower East Side, a lot of it happened because of what was happening then. Now, do you think that Velvet Underground album also impacted cities like Cleveland and Detroit and LA. I don't know. Or it, do you think it was their own like blue collar sound or their own rebellion against the Hollywood sound? I think that that's part of it and that's part of what was going on probably in LA. Um the in, surf rock. In Detroit was it was uh it was a, a kick out the jams. It was mm -hmm. a, we're not going to It was the early uh they were mentality of we're not going to take this. Yes. Yeah, blue collar as hell. Everybody working their ass off just to make a living. Yep. Uh right there in the uh the Detroit area. And uh, what happened there with them and the MC5? Can't, remember, can't forget the MC5. No way. The MC5, huge. Without the MC5, we wouldn't. With We needed the MC5 to have the Stooges. All right. I got to jump back to New York because okay. I forgot a couple bands from New York. All right. Let's Before talk about these Before we go forward on the, on the Stooges and everything Iggy, um, the other bands that really uh, kind of impacted it uh, in New York, they didn't really... I wouldn't even say that they were um, uh, a hit band, but everybody knows of the Fugs. Yeah. Now they were on the Lower East Side, which is where it's what made me think of it. It's where all the shit started yeah. down there, but in the area where all the great clubs were and cheap rents and a bunch of you know crazy kids wanting to live in the city. It's funny because that's a big Jewish neighborhood, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, and business neighborhood as well. I did not know that. Yeah, there's like the Lower East Side. I know when I was a kid in the '80s and '90s, that's where a lot of the Jewish merchants were. They were living side by side with the oh, freaks, yeah. you know. That's awesome. Now in the Bronx, there was a band called the Blues Magoos, who a lot more people heard of. They had the big hit that uh, was uh, number five in the U.S. We ain't got nothing yet. They were on. They went. They were on TV. They actually got out there. They were on uh, Bandstand, where the action is. So they came down to Philadelphia to perform on Bandstand. I guess that they did. They did. I might even remember seeing that one. Uh, they once were on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which was was pretty edgy for the time. That was super TV. edgy. But they were on there at a time, and it, and the thing is. The, the Blues Magoos became more well-known, I guess, as a psychedelic band, but they had a huge influence, and they also broke down some of those barriers. Uh, they were also... Check this out. This is one of those things that makes your mind go, what? They were once on the Craft Music Hall, hosted by Jack Benny. What? <laughs> so, you know... They, they they continued to record and they they but they had you know like everybody they fell into the psychedelic uh, vat that everybody was lumped into, uh, even though their uh, their roots were a little more uh, edgy than that. That's so funny. I mean, the and it's funny you mentioned that they were on a uh, Dick Clark's American Bandstand because Question Mark and the Mysterians also performed on American Bandstand as well, and it was kind of funny to see them who were so different than the rest of the sound that they were playing at that time. Right. But it was funny because they were kind of like, we're maybe a little out of place here. I, I noticed that with a few artists, yeah. and especially I think a lot of them were uncomfortable with the uh, the policy of having to lip sync to the songs. You know, yeah. They couldn't even sing live. 
Um, I remember a few artists changing that, but let's not get off the subject. Did you get down here to see it live when you were a kid? No. God, okay, I was just wondering old. if you got to see Bandstand when you were a young one. <laughs> All right, he just asking. Um, well, you know what we can do? Let's 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 stick to our original yes. plan, which and we'll come back to Detroit because yes. it's a long the journey here. Absolutely. Um, in L.A., you mentioned it earlier. You know, there was kind of a discontent against the plastic uh, Hollywood uh, facade. There's always been that, it and seems. Whether, but with music and culture and everything, uh, it, it was, L.A. was ripe for this because oh, yeah. there, was, there were a lot of kids. So, let's welcome them for the very first time on Shebang. They are the Seeds. And we were talking a band about a band called The Seeds. And, you know, they were, they were a regional hit. And then they, they kind of had a hit. Uh, their song, Pushing Too Hard, got them on top 40. That's where I first heard them. And what most people remember them is in 66. Whoa. And then they kind of went back to being regional favorites, like California favorites. So they could play and tour and get airplay uh, regionally. But they never uh, really broke out the way a lot of bands wanted to. But they broke up in 1969 at the creative peak and continued to influence the future generations of L.A. bands. You see a lot of these uh, almost, it seems like, these almost flash-in-the-pan phases of music produce some of the biggest influences, which is crazy because we listed down some of the influences of the Seeds or people who have claimed that we would know that claim the Seeds is an influence like Perubu, Garbage, yeah. the Ramones, Johnny Thunders, Alex Chilton, and I do want to talk about him sometime, the Bangles, Frank Zappa, <laughs> seriously. Well, it's uh, funny that Frank, he would just throw shit into everything. And <laughs> take a little pushing too hard, and I'm going to put it in the middle of this song, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also, you know, other bands, too. Uh, you know, there was Smashing Pumpkins cited them as an influence. And then you know, there Johnny was... Alarm uh, Clock. But you had it. But see, now, the, 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 the psychedelic goop, right? Yeah. It was all in... And it was all in pop radio and pop music and on the radio, AM radio and all that stuff. You know, you had the Strawberry Alarm Clock. And you had a bit, but you have bands like Love and the Electric Prunes that came out of the beginning of that whole thing. And then there's a band we were talking about doing this, and we were talking about the bands that we would look at and bring in. And one of them was the Standells. And I always, because of the song Dirty Water, always, always thought that they were from Boston. I thought, wow, how about this? They're from L.A. That is weird that they're playing that on the uh, Boston that the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Bruins play that every time they win. Well, that's what it's become kind of a tradition, but you yeah. know. Um, but they later they they're cited by the Ramones and the Sex Pistols as an influence. They were the epitome of gar successful garage rock. It was a big hit for them for a long time, and uh, they kind of rode the wave, and, uh, and then the wave went away, and Dirty Water remained, and then sports teams, I, you know, as soon as a sports team adopts one of your songs, it's going to go evergreen pretty much. Uh, they're one of those groups that uh, they had a lot of changing members. Uh, Dick Dodd came in. People know him. He was a former Mouseketeer, so people kind of recognized him, and they also had uh, Dewey Martin. Uh, after they did Dirty Water, Dewey Martin, who later was in Buffalo Springfield, uh, was in there, so they were. That's where they they kind of crossed paths in family trees with a couple things there, but they had an influence on people. They were even goofy enough to be on the Munsters. That's how acceptable the Standells were at some that's point. Awesome. I think I remember that. Come on, and Ringo was the song they performed. So, you know, that's the kind of influence that they had, and they were in that scene. So they got to be in a movie called Ride on Sunset Strip. It seemed perfect. So, 
Um, but being from L.A. and now identified with Boston, they are the Standells. That's pretty crazy. And the fact that the Sex Pistols claim them as an influence as well, which is funny because that's so something you wouldn't expect Johnny Rotten to say because Johnny Rotten's kind of a kind of a... Whatever you think, he's a dick. And he's a dick to be a dick, I guess you would say, just for the sake of being a dick, because on, on he's good Facebook at it. On our Facebook page, on our Facebook page, we posted the video. Uh, it's an argument between him and Rami, uh, Marky Ramon. Yeah, Marky Ramon, and the, and and them just oh, it's open season between factions of punk rock. If you oh, yeah. if you've never seen it, go check that out. It's fantastic uh, on uh, uh, imbalanced history of rock and roll on Facebook. So. Um, the next band is the band we wanted to talk about. We thought they were from L.A., and then we I started looking, and and there's right there, maybe Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma, Washington is very close, not too far from Seattle. Uh, the band, the Sonics, uh, they're cited as influences by Nirvana, Springsteen, The Fall, and others. Um, Mud honey. Yeah, and then you get into that, like we were talking about that dirty sound in uh, Seattle. You can draw some of the roots of it back to the Sonics, and it was Mud Honey was on that edge, and a lot of the other bands that uh, uh, that came up uh, later in the '80s and into the '90s in uh, in Seattle. I guess you could find a little bit of a uh, I don't know if it's a family tree mm-hmm. as much as it is you know the neighborhood and uh, having a huge influence because they were very influential on people who weren't from there. Yep, and one of the things that I find really impressive is how people found out about this music that wasn't maybe as mainstream but still big Mm -hmm. and they were able to take it be influenced by it and then hold on to it whereas today we have such an easier access and even since the 80s it was easy i mean through all the little rags that we would read like trouser press or um hard and fast or any of those I mean, we would we would find new music. Radio was also a great place yes. at that time as well. Now, going back to the proto-punk initial era in 65 and 66, it was still all AM. But yeah. Top 40 was a lot more open to the new sounds, okay. you know, the hip sounds. Okay, see, that's, that's right before my I was even born. <laughs> I know. So I don't remember radio <laughs> think, from that time period. Here's something I've been thinking about. Okay. I think because we have ju- we have about uh, nine, ten years between us, we have just the right gap to be complimentary on this podcast. Oh, by the way, it is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. And if you wonder why, <laughs> it's because uh, things like that. So, yeah. hey, you know what I thought I, th- I thought was also very interesting about the Sonics uh, was that the White Stripes named them as one of the bands that uh, had a big influence on me. They uh, on them they called them the epitome of '60s punk. So Jack Snow Slouch, you know, dude. Um, Jack might be the most influential rock and roll musician of the last twenty years. He is an incredible gift. He is a very important. I await every one of his recorded utterings with great intent. I know. I can't wait for the new Rockin' Tours record, which is just going to be good. filthy and dirty. The first Sounds two good. songs are nice and delicious and just filthy, and I can't wait to hear the rest of the record. Getting back to it, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana cites this band as an influence. I'm sure then that would include the... Uh, What's the quote I have here? The Sonics recorded very, very cheaply on a two-track. You know, they just used one microphone over the drums, and they got most amazing drum sound I ever heard. Still to this day, it's still my favorite drum sound. It sounds like he's hitting harder than anyone I've ever known. <laughs> That's a great quote. That's so Cobain, man. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, though, to see the uh, Bruce Springsteen also pipe up about the band. You know, he had some pretty interesting influences, uh, especially as... Uh, 
as L.A. became part of his life, or the West Coast became part of his life. Oh, yeah. um, in L.A., there was this band. They were called The Music Machine when everybody kind of heard of them. Uh, they had a song, Talk Talk, that was influential. Uh, had a lot of people uh, talking about it, no pun intended. Uh, got them onto the uh, underground radio and started taking things in that direction. And here's the interesting thing about it. Their bass player was Keith Olsen, young Keith Olsen, who would later go on to form Pogo Productions and become one of the great producers of the 70s and 80s and all that. Heading north up to San Francisco from L.A. in the 70s and 80s, the punk scene between the two were so different. San Francisco was a lot more, I would say, outright in-your-face political, whereas L.A. might have been a little more subtly political. But in the early days, you had bands in the psychedelia scene. You had Haight-Ashbury. You had all this crazy stuff happening up there. And the hate was happening well before 1967 when the Summer of Love was in play. Oh, yeah. But running like parallel to the Beats and the Folkies, because it was really a, a folk scene that evolved electric... Yeah. Uh, as far as the music, you know, if you look at a lot of the bands, there was sometimes bands that had a heavy acoustic sound. As they're moving forward, there's also this thing running parallel. But you also, with that scene in the 60s, didn't you have bands like Journey, who were a jazz band? You had Santana, who was doing a lot more jazz and not really well-known at that time. Carlos and that was, was brand new to the world in 1969. Okay, he was 69, so, so he when, was later. When we, Yeah, there was, okay, he was everything later. that started happening in 66 and 67 just okay. snowballed and grew and grew and okay. grew what was going on then was not that much but there was this band called the blue cheer another garage band that had an attitude you know they played a lot in the 60s into the 70s and uh, and they they had some hits they were known as a psychedelic blues band because i guess blue was in their name but they got lumped in with all the psychedelia and stuff but then they started having some hit records the biggest of which was their cover of summertime blues. Whoa. And it was everywhere. It became one of those songs that uh, stations would use every summer. They may, they may play it a little while as an, an oldie, you know, because it was from last year. But the summertime blues, of course, that led to the Who hearing it, uh, Eddie Cochran's original version, the whole nine yards. But that set off a little bit of an explosion out of San Francisco that added them to the mix. And, and now we come full circle back to Detroit where, you know, the blue-collar, hard-working Ashton brothers and their friend Jim, Dave Alexander, they all pull together and start playing in this band called the Stooges because they're stupid as fuck. You know what I mean? They yeah. they were just in Detroit. Years later, you know how like Detroit kind of looked at Eminem and his gang when they were all like freestyle yeah. battles in the alley and all that oh, stuff? Yeah. And a bunch eight of Mile. Dumbass, you know, the Eight Mile story, but that whole scene, that's how Detroit, the Motowns and all the, all the R&B favorites and stuff, these guys were the assholes of the scene. Okay. Nobody wanted to talk to them. Nobody wanted to play. They found each other, and they started something that still reverberates today. Now, yeah, this is where you see a little bit of cross-correlation. When they get around, we'll talk more about before this, but when they get around to making that first Stooges record, mm -hmm. produced by John Cale of the Velvet Underground. Yep. Ta-da! Um, yeah. Found that one. Boom. They started in Ann Arbor, and... Um, it was just those guys, and they played this style of rock and roll. I don't think the DJs knew what the hell to do with it. And eventually, 
the underground radio world started to embrace them a little bit. By then, things had changed, and they were starting to think about breaking up, I guess. Really, you had two great records, uh, Out of the Shoot in 69 with the Stooges and Funhouse in 70. I still have my early pressing of Funhouse. Hold on to that. Oh, I'm never letting that baby go. That album is fantastic. My parents used to shit when I would play it. They would get so pissed. <laughs> oh, they would get so fucking pissed. Well, because it gave an attitude. That's oh, yeah. What, at oh, rock and roll they would get so was. pissed. It was great. My mom especially. My dad was like, I kind of get what you're going through. But mom was like, uh-uh-uh. So the Stooges... They have a couple big records, including the one that drove your mama crazy, and then they break up. Yep. And they figure it out, and they get back together. A couple of years later, they do Raw Power, yeah. where the production values are better. Mm-hmm. Records sound really good. Yep. And then they break up again in 74. And then, yeah, James Williamson and Iggy Pop did that Stooges record together, and it was just the two of them without anybody else in the band, which was okay. It had some good music, but it wasn't punk. It was more refined. But... And then guys started dying, and it really hit by then. It was Iggy. Iggy had, had created a persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had, um, in the way that Bowie created a persona. Well, and, he was also part of that Berlin heroin oh, scene in 76. Nick Cave was part of the birthday party, and that was part of it. Well, he And was those guys shape. were all fucking crazy in that time period. Jim was out of control. Bowie was out of control. Oh, uh, Bowie was fucking nuts so at that time. So what they did was they decided Bowie took him under his wing and said, yeah, hey, come with me. I'm going to Berlin. We're going to work on it. We're going to do uh, Station to Station. Mm-hmm. So come hang with me. And he just hung out with them. And they, they kind of worked through a lot of that, their shit. They figured it out. And they got themselves in a much better place at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they were together all through that. I mean, think, I, Jesus. And then, yeah, that's where they wrote China Girl in that time period, I think. Or right after that. Well, the Stooges eventually yeah. got their turn. Yeah. And they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2010. So late. I know. They well, should have been in, in one of the first classes. Come on. I want to be your dog. Dude. The concept of I want to be your dog. Dude, alone. that song. So, anyway. They got the same treatment that a lot of innovators got through the years. The critics, mm-hmm. uh, the, the big names and the little ones all slapped them around, except for one guy. Who? Who was it? Lester Banks. He was their savior. He would write great things about them and make sure that the people who thought like they thought and thought like he thought would get their exposure because they were getting shit on by the big guys. Man. Lester Bangs, Bowie, Iggy, listen to this. This is just crazy, all these ties. Nick Cave, through the birthday party, who was doing the heroin rock, he left Australia to go to Berlin at the same time they did. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, and they, oh, I can't wait till we do a page or a, an episode about Nick Cage. I have the hugest boner for that dude's music, man. <laughs> Love Nick Cave. Bromance. <laughs> totally bromance, man. He's, he's totally amazing. Podcast. And he's got a new album coming out in 2019, which I'm stoked about. Cool. Um, but then, okay, so we've been talking about the Stooges, but before them is a band who, without this band, there would be no Stooges. I think you could make a case for that, because not only did they come before, but they opened up and create, helped to create a scene that the Stooges were able to plug into as far as gigs and what was going on in the Detroit area. From Lincoln Park, Michigan, I give you MC5. 
kick out the jams, motherfucker. They were one of the first bands that everybody went, well, we'll never play that record on the radio because of that. Eventually, people edited it out. Some people did because it was too good not to play. And crazy as they were as crazy as they were loaded. Well, Fred Sonic Smith, I guess maybe he was the more grounded one, but he was pretty wild, too. I mean, they they had attitude coming out. First thing in the morning, man, before coffee, they had attitude. Wayne Kramer, are you kidding me? The guy, you're talking about crazy, man. Dude ended up in jail for yeah. a while. For I know. Big drug deal, if I'm yeah, not ma- mistaken. It was. Uh, he was uh, selling cocaine to uh, undercover cops and went to prison for two years. That, guess who he met in prison? Who? Charlie Parker's guy, Red Rodney. What? You ever saw the movie Bird? It's, yes, yeah, Charlie. Yeah. yeah, and they played together at uh, in when they were in prison together, like the Blues <laughs> Brothers for crying out loud. <laughs> but check it out. Now, there's a connection to John Lennon here, and this is how it comes together. Okay, you know who John Sinclair was? He was their manager. Yeah. But he's also the founder of the White Party. The White uh, Panther White Party, Panther which Party, was yeah. a radical left-wing White yes, Party. Yes, it was. And later, John Landau stepped in. But John Sinclair was their manager uh, up until um, he got popped for a pot possession in Toronto, I think. Oops. And they were going to put him away. And that's when Lennon came in and, you know, did the concert to free John Sinclair and all that stuff so up, in, up in Toronto. And then John Landau became their manager. It never seemed to really all come together. They had an insane cult following, similar to the Velvets, where not everybody bought their record, but everybody who did formed a band kind mm-hmm. of a vibe. And I think that's a theme in a lot of this yes. here. Uh, they were dirty. They were dirty fucking rock and roll. They were as, They took that New York sound and made it filthy. They were just a filthy version of it. And I love that about them. And they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> no. They were like, fuck it. Hey, we're dirty. Listen. This is where the, the streams cross, though. Yeah. Okay, Kramer gets out of prison after his, his cocaine possession. Yeah. Right? Goes to New York, teams up with Johnny Thunders, form a band called Gang War. So, you know, we're talking about in the, later in the 70s, but here's the, the connections back to this proto-punk era moving forward. Um, he was a wacky dude. He was on the Uncle Floyd show, for Christ's sake. Okay. I saw that. And he was the original guitarist and was not was. It's one of those things. Wayne Kramer was? Wayne Kramer, yeah. That is the the weirdest thing because I I remember hearing them on alternative college radio. I know. It's like finding out that John McLaughlin thing on the Yardbirds episode last week, right? It's like, what? Exactly. You learn all kinds of shit. I'll tell you that. Anyway, but um, and he was involved with that. And uh, he later signed with uh, Beck Gurevitz Epitaph Records and did some records there and, you know, continued to work with... uh, David was, while Don was busy with the Stones, I guess. It's just really interesting to see all these things come together um, when you see the way that things start all out there in in different cities and different parts of the country, Mm -hmm. how they all come together um, and cross-pollinate. Mm-hmm. Crossbreed, crossbreed, crosspollinate, and you know, John Cale coming through and uh, producing for the Stooges, things like that. Those connections, the you just don't see that. You never, you didn't see that much of that. Okay, other the scene stuff, other yeah. than the beats. Okay, you know, after the beats, it was the beginning of rock and roll yeah. having the scenes here, there, and everywhere, and then they all started connecting. Now, were bands like. The MC5 and the Standells and all of them touring and playing small places with some of these bands in that time period. I don't know. 
because I've been trying to look you know up what? and see if there, I've been a- looking. No, I've been looking to see <laughs> if there were any that I could find, and I couldn't find any dates with any of these bands together. Setlist doesn't have them, which I don't expect. But you would expect some old like microfilm or microfiche rags, which might have that stuff on it. Maybe has been found or printed by hardcore researchers. Some age age realis- realistic uh, timeline here. <laughs> yep. Sixty <laughs> five. Yes. I was like seven. So you know, I was hearing this stuff like everybody else on the radio. That's why some of this stuff sticks stuck in my brain. That's why some of it's still relevant to a lot of people now. Yeah. But the biggest thing is what we've been talking about. Look at the picture we're painting of the influence of what was happening in America pre-67. That's true. Post-Beatles, 65 and 66, all this amazing music. And another episode, we've got to talk about the bigger picture, and we can bring back some of our favorites from this one mm-hmm. and talk about the garage band phenomena of America. Yeah. And how many bands... How many of those bands that bought the Velvet Underground records and the MC5 records ended up in garages? No kidding. And, and then on Warner Brothers in Columbia, and you know, I, I bet if we, I bet if we read all the books that they wrote, we'd find a lot of them in there. <laughs> We're just getting started. We have unlimited ability to count episodes. Yeah. We're so going to we'll, need a research team eventually. Recoup here, along with my buddy. I am the Doc. He is Marcus in the Darkest, and this is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. I tell you what, man, we're having fun with this. Yes, we are. A lot of people are giving us some great input, and um, we thank you for uh, tuning in, and uh, thank you for being part of it by uh, emailing us at our Gmail account. It's imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Or where can they find us on social media? On Facebook, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Like the page, listen to the podcast, comment, get involved. It is a production of Dark Duck Media, Ray Coob and Marcus in the Darkest for episode number six, American Proto-Punk. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.